everybody. My name's Mike. I want to welcome you to our community. Grab a Bible. We're going to Genesis chapter uno. I want to say thank you for the many wishes and prayers and kind words uh, since we, our announcement last week. Thank you. You guys are amazing. It's ridiculous. I uh, want to invite you too. If you, um, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and let one of our highly trained martial artists disguised as Bible hander outers uh, know, and they will get a Bible into your hands. We are starting a new series this morning called You Are Here, and the idea is that the life that God has for you isn't somewhere else. It's just sitting right in front of you. And so Genesis chapter 1. Now, uh, as you know, there are two different creation stories. In Genesis 1, there's like the broadest view possible. In Genesis 2, the focus narrows in on the creation of the man and the woman. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes just observing some things about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And then we'll go to some other places, and then maybe half an hour from now, it'll begin to make sense what it is that we're talking about. So, Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, notice this. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. In other words, God creates the land with the capacity to create more of itself, right? Seeds are what? Embryonic plants. And so there's the sense in which God loads creation, not in some static, frozen sort of way, but with the capacity to reproduce itself. Go, if you would, uh, to verse 22. God creates the great creatures of the sea and the birds of the air. And God says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. I always had a picture of Genesis 1 and 2. And I, don't, I learned about it on the flannel graph. Oh, is that a phone? Is that a, can I answer the phone? Who was it? We, you don't know? And God said, let there be silence. And there was. There, there's the sense in which that God, I always, in the flannel graph moment, I always thought of creation as kind of frozen and static and not at all changing. But that's not the picture we get. God loads creation with all sorts of potential and possibility. And then he invites the man and the woman to draw that out. Verse 26, God said, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness. So that they may what? Rule. Now rule here doesn't mean like strip mine and pollute. Rule means to arrange. It means to promote the flourishing of creation and to honor God. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock, over all the wild animals. God blessed them, verse 28, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky. In other words, God creates not a frozen or static thing. He says it's good, but it's, he doesn't say that it's perfect. I mean, I always thought that like, it was so well done that, that the humans, their only job was like, don't screw it up. 
But, but we get a slightly different picture. It's good so that it's, it's without sin, without death, without calories, without anything that's bad. It's awesome. But the man and the woman were nestled into creation to work. They were to rule. Even the verb subdue meant there was a wildness to God's creation that the human beings were to tame a little bit. And out of that taming, they would bring forth all the possibilities, the latent potential that was embedded in creation itself. I want you to see that God created a world that needed human participation. Could God have ruled and filled and subdued better than us? That would be yes. But instead, he invites these little clods of dirt, right? Who were just clods of dirt a few verses ago. He invites them to participate. Go if you would to chapter 2. Verse 2. God creates for six days. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work he was done. It's not obviously because God was tired, but because his part of the work was completed and now he was making room for the humans to work. Now, here's what's interesting. Notice, God works and he invites humans to do what? Work. God rests. Later on in the story, what does he invite humans to do? Rest, right? The Sabbath day. So in these, like, like this little infinitesimal way, we're actually mimic, mimicking what God is like and what God does. God works, we work. God creates, we create. God names, we name. God rests, we rest. So there's this rhythm that's built into the very creation story of the cycle of six days of work and one day of rest. Work, notice, was it a consequence of the fall, Right? Sin isn't even in the picture. Evidently, the man and the woman were placed on the earth to do something with it. Notice chapter 2, verse 5. Now this is zeroing in on the creation of the man and the woman. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And notice the second phrase. And there was no one to work the ground. In other words, God created the world in such a way that somebody needed to work the ground. Now, here's a couple of minor obscure points for your entertainment. The the phrase, no one to work the ground, it's actually no Adam to work the Adama. The Adam, the man, we know is Adam. The ground is Adama. The man and the ground have a relationship. That the man was created from the ground and was in turn to work the ground. The naming of the man because of his relationship to the ground is a very Jewish way of saying that central to human beings is the desire to be productive, to make a contribution, to be a part of something bigger than themselves built into the very fabric of who we are and what it means to be made in God's likeness is the idea that we're to be productive. And this is before sin and death have entered the world. And in fact, what's, what, what the, the picture is we get instead is that they were invited and the creation itself was 
loaded with potential in such a way that until the man and the woman began to work the ground, there was part of creation that had not yet been brought out of possibility into realization. Go to verse 7. Are you guys out there? Okay, awesome. Sometimes silence is an indication of boredom. Sometimes silence is an indication of just the profound words flowing. My guess is usually it's the first. Now, verse 7, chapter 2. The Lord God formed the Adam from the dust of the Adama and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the reason this is so significant is because human beings are not animals, nor are they angels. Animals are physical beings, but they don't have spirits in the same way that human beings do. Angels are spirit beings, but are not inherently physical the way that humans are. In all of creation, we stand unique. We're not fully spiritual, and we're not fully physical. We're this hybrid of both. We're the place where the physical and the spiritual meet, one of the places. And because of that, the Scriptures begin to paint a picture that every single thing that human beings are involved with is a spiritual issue. It's how, and you look at like, literally, you go through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and God has opinions on all kinds of things. How, how you dress, the clothes that you wear, how you treat the elderly, how you treat those that are younger than you, how you hire, what you pay, what you do with money, how you loan to each other, how you clean mold from your house. Right? I mean, and you just go, oh my goodness, this seems burdensome. But instead, the picture is being painted is that there isn't one single aspect of human life where God says, oh, go ahead, I don't have an opinion. There isn't one part of it. And see, for far too long, you and I have lived under the idea that there are sacred spheres in life and secular spheres of life. There are religious parts of life and the non-religious parts of life. There are 10,080 minutes in a week. We gather together as the church in an old movie theater with a weird wall for 80 minutes a week. Is it the temptation to think that the 80 minutes in here are more important than the 10,000 minutes out there? But I tell you, the 80 minutes in here are either validated or invalidated by the 10,000 minutes out there. You can sing that God is good, but if you live those 10,000 minutes in a way that is not congruent with God's goodness, then you really don't believe He's good. It doesn't matter what you say or what you sing. And the problem with much of American Christianity is that it seeks to only answer one question. What happens if you were to die tonight? And we say, well, great, Jesus is the answer. But what happens if you live tonight? Isn't Jesus the answer to that question too? So the invitation to follow Him isn't just extending into the religious parts. We were made to work. For a lot of you, the 10,000 minutes that you spend are working. 
whether that's folding laundry in an a never-ending amount of laundry folding, or it's you cook breakfast, you clean the dishes, you cook lunch, you clean the dishes, you cook dinner, you clean the dishes, and that's one day. <laughs> or it's carpool, or it's in cubicle land, where you literally, literally you spend your day trying to get through the day with as little work done as possible. <laughs> right? I mean, do, what is... What does the scripture have to say about those 10,000 minutes? Is it just what happens when we die? Or is it, does it also talk about what happens if we live? And very early in the story, what you recognize is that central to being human is, the, is working with your hands to bring forth out of creation things that are beneficial to human beings and glorifying to God. And God could have done it all better himself, but for whatever reason allows these little clumps of dirt who are hybrid spiritual physical beings some degree of rulership. Now notice, chapter 3, what they do with their rulership is they decide they like their own rule better than God's rule. Shocking. I mean, I know none of us would have made this choice, but you know, Adam and Eve kind of screwed it up for all of us. Chapter 3, verse 17. Notice what God does in response. He says something to the serpent. He says something to the woman. But notice what he says to the man. Verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the what? The ground, the man was named in relationship to the ground. God curses the ground, and so now work. Notice what work becomes. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. So instead of work, and interestingly enough, the word work in Genesis 2 is almost exactly the same word that's used for worship. So initially, the man and the woman were to worship God by ruling and filling and subduing, not by singing songs. But now, what does work become? Painful toil. And everybody said, amen. I mean, have you ever wondered, why, why is it that I just can't get ahead? Why is it that there's always a problem? Why is it that I go from one horrible boss to another horrible boss? Why is it? That no matter how much of a raise I get, six months later, I'll need another one. I mean, why is it perpetually frustrating that no matter how many accomplishments, no matter how much success, I always want more? One of the reasons why work is so difficult, and instead of being a joy and worship, it is now a painful toil. So we got cursed the ground. And one of the reasons he did that was to drive us back to him. I mean, once we were rebellious, he uses our own self-interest against us. So it, we were tempted to find meaning, purpose, and significance in working the ground. And God says, nope, you're not going to be able to find meaning, purpose, and significance in working the ground. So work itself doesn't fulfill us the way it was designed to. And so now we live with painful toil. And the question then becomes to a rebellious creation... Will we use the fruit of our hands in ways that are congruent with God's purposes or not? Go to Genesis 4. This is all background, by the way, to point number one. 
Adam and Eve have a couple of kids, obviously, more than a couple. Notice, Cain and Abel were their names. Notice the second part of verse 2. Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. So right away in the story, one of the things that the, the earliest humans started doing was recognizing that there's a subduing and a filling and a ruling that they did and that they were beginning to order, whether it was through farming or whether it was through shepherding, creation itself for the benefit of other humans. But notice, instead of partnering with each other to bring about the potential of creation into realization, what do they do? We all know Cain and Abel, right? One murders the other out of jealousy or pride or whatever it was. But instead now of the fruit of our hands being a place for shalom and peace and the worship of God, now there's competition and envy. And the question goes forward into the biblical narrative. Will these rebellious creatures work in a way that furthers the aims and purposes of their creator or not? Go to Genesis 11. Flip over a couple pages to the right. Verse 3, the men said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Now, bricks, I know this sounds a little silly, but bricks were kind of like a big deal. When we transitioned from building with rocks that you had to chisel into shape to bricks where you could make them uniformly a shape, you could build faster and better and higher. You'll just have to take my word for this. Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now the question becomes, what are they going to do with this newfound technology of bricks? Will they use this to further God's purposes in the world? Or not? We know the answer. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And so what you have is a creation that's embedded with potential. And a man and a woman whose role it was as an act of worship to their creator to fill and subdue and rule and work and steward it. But because of their disobedience, now work is painful toil. And the question becomes, will the humans use the work of their hands to promote the flourishing of other humans and the glorification of their Creator, or will they use the works of their hands for great evil? And think about it today. I mean, the personal computer. That's kind of a brick moment, right? That's the result of human labor. So the question is, are they used for great good? Absolutely. Are they used for great evil? Absolutely. How about medical technology? The technology we have to not only treat, but to diagnose. We can pick embryos, and we can do all manner of things. Is it used for great good? Absolutely. Is it used for great evil? Absolutely. And as disciples of Jesus, we sit in jobs where the question becomes, are our jobs things and activities and tasks, things that participate in the ongoing work and movement and character of God or not. Work is a very, very sacred thing. 
to our Creator. Notice, if you would, Isaiah 65. Okay, so we just looked at the beginning of the story. I want to look at the end of the story because you and I live in the middle of it. And how you know how it begins, and if you know how it ends, it changes the way you live in the middle of it. Isaiah 65. The prophets had a way of speaking of what God was going to do someday. They called it the day of the Lord. And what God was going to do is that He wasn't going to zap people up to heaven and give everyone wings and harps, but that He was going to do something, I think, much more epic than that. Verse 17, Isaiah 65. This is God speaking. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight. Interesting, the word Eden means delight. The Garden of Eden was called the Garden of Delight. I will create Jerusalem now to be a delight, and its people a joy. Jump down to verse 21. What will we do in this new earth? They will build houses. Now, hold on a second. I thought we had all gold mansions, right? With little wings like helipads so we could just kind of wing our way. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not labor in vain. It sounds kind of like we're still working, right? I mean, is that, is that just me? I mean, I, I literally thought we, we, we're zapped up, we live in clouds as disembodied, floaty spirits with harps in an eternal church service. And that's better than the other place, but it didn't seem, you know, terribly exciting. But the pictures that the Bible gives us are of resurrected human beings who now have immortal bodies living face-to-face with their Lord Jesus on a new earth doing human things. That's interesting. Go, go if you would, to uh, the book of Revelation. The big, scary book of Revelation. Go to the end. Chapter 21. Now this is awesome. Revelation 21, verse 1. Go to the table of weights and measures and go two pages to the left. (laughs) Then I saw a what? A new heaven and a new earth. Now, here's what's interesting. There are two different Greek words for new. There's one word that means brand new, never been seen before. And there's another word that means new and improved, upgraded. The word that's used here is the word for upgraded, meaning the earth will be like our earth, but it will be better. It will have been purged of evil. It will have been purged of suffering. It will have been purged of darkness. And fear. So the image we get is of a garden in the beginning where people are working. 
And the image we get of the end is of a city, a new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven and sits on the earth and God dwells with his people. And what do they do? Go to chapter 22. Notice verse 3. No longer will there be any what? How cool is that? Notice verse 5. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will what? Reign forever and ever. Now, does it sound a little bit like Genesis 1 and 2? Does it sound like the story ends in the same way the story began? With people in living and trusting obedience to their creator God, living in a created world with physical bodies that are now resurrected and imperishable, and that they will be reigning and ruling and subduing in the same way God designed for them originally. Now see, that, that's an incredible picture But notice the implications for what you do with those 10,000 minutes. If you were designed to work in the beginning and you will work in the end, what do we do now under the sun where our work is painful toil? Go to 1 Corinthians 3. Let's talk about why this matters. Now we are beginning to get to point number one. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This will shock you. This will stagger your imagination. But the early church had celebrity pastors that divided people over which one was their favorite. I know we cannot imagine a thing happening like that today. But back then, is no one picking up on the sarcasm? Back then, there was a little bitty house church in Corinth. And they had their favorites, right? There were some people that said, man, we're big fans of Paul. Because Paul planted the church. So we're big fans of the founder. And then there was this guy named Apollos, and he was like slick. He was, a, he was trained in rhetoric, and he was way more eloquent than Paul was. And then there was this guy named Cephas, who we know as Peter. Peter, he walked with Jesus. You can't top that. And so you have a church that's divided over human personalities. Shocking. And Paul begins to beat the crud out of that idea. He just says, okay, let me get this straight. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Did Paul save you? Peter died for your sins? Oh, that's right. This whole thing's about Jesus. Sorry, I forgot. And then he gives two incredible metaphors. He said, listen, this is how you should think of church leaders. I planted. Apollos watered. But it was God who caused the growth. And then he gives a second picture. Notice what he says about church leaders. He says, verse 10, By the grace God has given me, Paul, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Now, is he speaking of a literal building? No. He's speaking of the body of Christ, the image of a church, and he's using the image of a building to talk about what it looks like to build a church, a group of people. And he says, so there's a foundation that I laid. And now, there's another pastor building on that foundation. But verse 11, but each one should be 
Be careful how they build. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. But if any church leader builds a church using gold, silver, or costly stones, the analogy is that these were precious metals that represent like the good and enduring work that's congruent with God's purposes, or wood, hay, or straw, which represent human efforts that are based only on human efforts and human wisdom and human teaching and that are not enduring in nature. Notice what he says. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day, capital D, day, right? That means judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And fire will test the quality of each person's work. He's talking about church leaders. If what has been built, does what? Survives. Evidently, you can labor in such a way that your work survives into the new world. If, it, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved even though it's only someone escaping through the flames. So the idea is, how does God's new world come to pass? Well, the images the Scriptures give is there's a judgment coming that will refine and will purify all of the elements not of God in Christ. But there are some things that you and I do now that will survive. And there are some things that you and I do now that won't. We're saved, but some of us are coming in smelling like smoke. Can I get an amen? (laughs) So what does the Bible have to say about your 10,000 minutes? Whether that's folding laundry, whether that's sitting in carpool, whether that's at a child soccer practice, whether that's sitting in school, whether that's being an administrative assistant or having an administrative assistant, whether that's somebody selling mortgages or drawing up blueprints or selling cars, what does the scripture have to say about those activities? If they're spiritual in nature, we were designed to work, what the scripture says is simply this, what you do with the fruit of your hands and your labor matters way beyond the 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years you have here. Notice, I mean, uh, the teachings of Jesus are so full of this. Mondo, you know what to do. Jesus ends one of his parables by saying, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves So that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So how you use your wealth matters. Notice this. I mean, this is so... I mean, imagine if this is really true. Which it is. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. So So the analogy is little versus much. And whoever is dishonest with little will be dishonest with much. So if you, have been, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, which by analogy is the little, who will trust you with true riches, which is the much? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, right? All that you have is God's ultimately. Who will give you property of your own? 
In other words, one of the reasons why your work matters, in Dallas Willard's phrase, you are training for reigning. If that's what you do forever, you're literally practicing being faithful with God's stuff. That's why integrity matters. That's why faithfulness matters. Even if you hate what you do, it is possible to find in the job that you don't like aspects of it that actually promote human flourishing and are congruent with God's new order. And I know that sounds so silly, but can you say in the face of this that building a home, spending your years building a home for children, for your kids, that somehow that doesn't matter? And I know it involves laundry and carpool, but how in the world do we think that's somehow less spiritual or important in God's economy? See, it is just a lie to believe otherwise. Or for those of you that have to support your family by engaging in work that you don't particularly enjoy, but because you love them, you do it. The Lord would say, do it with all your heart because you're ultimately not working for that person. There are bigger reasons. If you're faithful in a situation where you don't like it, you'll be trusted with more. Now, I don't think that means you win the lotto. <laughs> At least it hasn't worked that way in my life. But I think there's something more profound being said. Notice this. Another parable. Well done, my good and faithful servant. This parable of the talents. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. I claim Rancho Cucamonga because I just love saying the name. Right? Another parable. Who then is the faithful servant? Verse 46. It will be good for the servant who finds them doing their job when the master returns. Truly I tell you, he will put the servant in charge of all of his possessions. I mean, how many different ways does Jesus have to spell it out? What you do here matters. You were built to work. To be productive. For those of you that have been unemployed or are unemployed, you know there's something more that's missing than a paycheck when you're unemployed. There's something deep within us that needs to contribute. This was the way God made us. And so the Lord invites us, knowing the end of the story and the beginning of the story, to find our work in its proper place. There are some of us who think work is such a big deal that we literally define ourselves by it. So the first thing we want to know about other people is what do you do? And we have this subconscious categorization. Oh, okay, so you're a general contractor. Well, that's different than, oh, you're a doctor. Or you're a pastor. No, we want to destroy that. But others of us are so convinced that work is just a necessary evil that we don't do it with integrity. I mean, I, I know so many college kids who are like, man, I lead a Bible study at my work, but then I show up late. I never call when I don't show up, and I totally just am lame in how I treat everybody. God doesn't care if you lead a nice little Bible study if the way that you work actually violates the Bible you're studying. You know what I mean? I'd rather you just shut the Bible. I mean, for those of you that have fish on your cars and you drive very angrily, Take the fish off or change the way you drive. Right? I mean, I'm just saying. There's a sense in which 
we operate in such a binary, dualistic mode. Sacred, secular, religious, not religious. Jesus wants you to know that those 10,000 minutes matter. Notice what Paul writes to the Colossians. I find this so interesting. Now he says slaves, and slavery in the first century There are lots of aspects of it that were awful. But there were parts of it that were so different from the slavery that that, uh, Americans engaged in. Right? There was nothing good about that. In In the first century, there were some good aspects. And so Paul is writing to households. In those households, you'd have husbands and wives and children and servants. So he writes to the servants. And he says, Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you. Oh my goodness, how many of us are awesome at working hard when we're being watched? And then literally, the, the, our boss like, is looking the other way and all we're doing is forwarding dumb jokes to our family you know, for the rest of the afternoon. Do it not only when their eye is on you or to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for who? The Lord. Now, I know we all know God is my boss, but imagine if you actually believed it. Would you work differently? I guarantee we would. I guarantee we would. Whatever you do, all right, so does that leave anything out? Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. That's why Paul will say, very, very simply, to people engaged in very menial tasks, do it for God. You'll receive an inheritance. What's the inheritance? Well, I don't know what Paul meant here, but one of the things that's said everywhere else is that if you're faithful with little, you'll receive much. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like we'll do ruling and reigning in the age to come, and I'd rather be overseeing Rancho Cucamonga, just myself. But think about the implications of this. My investment in building a church will be tested by light and fire. Some of what I've labored to build may survive. I don't even know what that looks like. What does it mean that our work survives into God's new world? I have no idea. But isn't it interesting just to even ask the question? And so how you use money, how you see your calendar, how you operate in email and in work relationships, that is just as, if not more important, than what you do in your religious sanctioned times. And so this morning, and this just strikes me to the core, so this morning what I thought we'd do is I thought we'd just sit for a moment in quiet Because I would imagine, I mean, what are the implications? Well, they're they're as massive as as many different jobs as we have in here. I mean, if you're a student, well, what does this mean for you? Don't cheat. If you're a business person, be known for your integrity even when it hurts you financially. Work in a way that honors God, even if you can't go around with a shirt that says, I love Jesus. But I would be happy if we just all asked the question, what does it look like to teach 
in a way that honors God, to mom in a way that honors God, to dad in a way that honors God, to literally look at our tasks not as a means to paychecks, but as something far more profound. So would you close your eyes for a moment? And would you just invite, I don't know what you do with your 10,000 minutes. But if you're like me, maybe the thought isn't too prevalent that God, God wants those too. And so maybe there's just a bit of confession that we start with by asking God, where are the places where I just even, haven't even considered you? Where are the places either what I'm doing or how I'm doing it violate the new world that God has inaugurated in Christ? What, is it, what does it mean to ask forgiveness from people that are upset with you or go seek out reconciliation at work? What does it look like to model the love and forgiveness of Jesus to people that often we just don't like. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd just wake us up in these few moments of, of quiet. Not out of guilt. We don't work because we love, <laughs> because we feel like we've got to convince you we're lovable. We don't work out of guilt. But God, we pray that you'd open our eyes. That you'd speak.